This is the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your Word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The Word to Stand On for Life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show, the Friday edition. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about anything going on in your life. From a Christian perspective, all you need to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585 if you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And if you are driving in your car and it's wet out there, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Lots going on this weekend. I hope you have a great weekend in church. This is, I think, the fifth Sunday of the month, and uh, we are excited. We're going to be finishing finally here, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter on Sunday. Tonight, I'm going to be teaching on Jesus' letter to the church at Laodicea, uh, and then uh, next Friday night, uh, we will be having the rapture. Now, I'm not naming dates for the rapture, but we will be having the rapture, at least here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, as I'll be teaching from Revelation chapter 4, just the one verse, and we're we'll talk only about the rapture of the church. And I'm excited because it actually could happen before next Friday. So all of that's going on, and we'd love to have you join us. Our Bible studies are... Uh, live streamed at calvarysa.com. Well, let me get to some questions that have been sent in because there are several of them. The first one is from Sarah from our email inbox. She says, hello, I heard you say that Judas's decision cost him eternity. I was wondering how you read Matthew nineteen twenty-eight in that context where Jesus was referred to I'm sorry, where Jesus referred to the 12 being on 12 thrones. I read that verse as saying Judas will still be one of the 12 in that context. I was wondering what you think about that. Well, Sarah, I think you're wrong, obviously. I think you're wrong, and I think you know you're wrong. The idea here is all you have to do is read it in context. Uh, If we go to um, John chapter 17, verse 12, it says, Well, I was... With them, I protected them. This is Jesus speaking, John 17. This is the high priestly prayer. I protected them and kept them safely by that name you gave me. None was lost 
except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. Now, the idea here that the King James used the word son of perdition, and he says the one doomed to destruction, the idea is the same, that Judas wasn't one of them. Now, in your passage of scripture from uh, Matthew chapter 19, Jesus says he hasn't lost, or the 12 thrones are for those who have followed him. Plainly, simply, those who have followed him. And Judas didn't follow him. Judas betrayed him. So um, there are going to be 12 thrones in heaven. Uh, actually, 24 thrones, lesser thrones than Jesus' throne. 12 will be uh, inhabited by the 12 patriarchs of the tribes of Israel. The other 12, uh, the uh, 12 apostles. Now, we also know that uh, Judas, under the direction of of, uh, the Holy Spirit um, in the book of Acts, the end of chapter 1, Judas needed to be replaced. And uh, they shook out a lot, and the lot fell to a man named Matthias. So Matthias will be on that 12th throne. Now, normally the question I get about the 12th throne says, well, I think that 12th throne should have been for Paul if they just would have waited till the Holy Spirit fell. But but remember, the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen yet, and Peter was going by Scripture, no doubt that he was being led by the Lord, and it was God who, a very Jewish way of determining the will of God, uh, God who oversaw the casting of the lot, and the lot fell to Matthias. So um, uh, it shouldn't have been Paul. It certainly isn't Judas. And um, Sarah, that's just, it's, it's, uh, it, it is as clear as it can possibly be. Um, there's a follow-up question to this that I got that says, uh, let me get to this one. Um, hold on a second, got to find it. Here it is. Uh, also from Sarah. Uh, I sent in a question, why have you forsaken me? It's recorded in Matthew 27, 46. Jesus was forsaken by his father, and he was. That's why Jesus said it. So I was wondering how you see that in light of the Deuteronomy 31, 6 and Psalm 118 references in Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, where it is recorded, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. A couple of things here, Sarah. Um, This was not the father speaking to the son. Jesus is the one who was forsaken. Uh, He was forsaken by God. Remember, he was God. This is not the Father speaking to the Son. Hebrews 13, in the context, you can't just take that passage out of Scripture and and clip it out. It's it's about money. And what they're they're saying is is learn to be content in Christ. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13 uh, says, it, it, it starts with marriage should be honored by all. And then in the next verse, verse 5, keep your lives free from love of money. Be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So in other words, trust in God. Don't trust in money. Don't trust in circumstances. And Jesus will help them. Verse 6 says, uh, so I will not be afraid. That's the conclusion uh, by quoting the psalm. So um, the, the, the thing we've got to remember, we've got to look at the context. And you can't just take verse 5 out, half of it, say, well, no, he's talking about, he's talking about, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Jesus was forsaken. He said it himself. And you have to be 
I mean, it can't be any more clear than that. And so, Sarah, you know, I, I want you to resolve these issues in your mind. But the truth is that um, I think you have an agenda that you're trying to promote. And um, you're going to do everything you can, including taking verses out of context to try to prove it. Uh, Judas is not in heaven. Judas will not be in one of the 12 thrones. Um, I don't need to go there. Never mind. Okay. Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate the questions very, very much. 340-9585. Here is a question from our email inbox from SMY, all initials. Greetings, Pastor Ron. Last week, a caller had a question about prophets. Your response, from what I recall, was that there are no longer prophets in the world at this time. I have a sister who claims to be a prophet, so this is a very important subject for me. I'm pretty sure she's not, so I don't question that. However, upon reading the New Testament, Romans 12.6 mentions prophecy as a gift. Please help me understand. Thank you, SMY. SMY, a couple of things. Uh, uh, it also mentions the gift of prophecy in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, here's I'm, I've just been teaching through 1 Corinthians so this is fresh on my mind. And what I told our church was, having the gift of prophecy does not make one a prophet. There is a gift of prophecy, but the prophecy as described in 1 Corinthians 12 and later in 1 Corinthians 14 means that prophecy is a gift. It's not the foretelling of God's words. It's not telling the future. It's the forth with a TH on the end of it, the forth telling of God's word. So the gift of prophecy is designed to edify the body. Let me give you a couple of examples. When I teach the Bible, I am forth-telling the Word of God, and people are being edified. You know, when you're in a church and, and it feels like that God's speaking just to you and there's nobody else there, that's because the Word of God is going forward, and the Spirit of God is working through the Word of God. That's the gift of prophecy. And it happens all the time. We have afterglows here at Calvary Chapel. And and in afterglow, somebody will get up and say, God put this verse on my heart and they'll declare that word. And somebody will stand up a couple minutes later and say, "That, that was for me. Thank you very much. And it's just God answering questions. So the gift of prophecy has to be distinct from the office of the prophet. Now, we know in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, and I, I always say that God is a dispensationalist when, he, when, when I, I come to these verses. God is simply acknowledging that he does different things at different times in different ways. And it says, in these last days, God, oh, I'm sorry, uh, in, in, in earlier times, in previous times, God has spoken to us through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But, and here's the dispensation, but in these last days, he has spoken to us and literally, the Greek is in son. Uh, most of your translations will say by his son or through his son. But it's literally in son. And that's God saying, Jesus is my final word. There is now no longer a need for a prophet. Now, when we get to the great tribulation, not we, because we won't be there. But when we get to the great tribulation, there are going to be prophets again. There's going to be 144,000 uh, Jewish evangelists who are also uh, prophets. Uh, uh, Moses and Elijah are going to appear at the Western Wall, the two witnesses. They are going to be prophets. But again, we're going backwards to the Old Testament dispensation. So, Jesus is God's final word. 
Ephesians chapter 2 speaks about prophets and apostles, along with Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone, as being the foundation that the church is built on. And if you look at the language closely, this is one of the reasons we need to be workmen, workwomen, rightly dividing the word of God. Um, we need to understand that that those prophets and apostles are the foundation Jesus already laid. It's past tense. And then it says, and the church is being built on that foundation. So uh, in, in Ephesians, we're talking about the five uh, uh, gifts to the church. It's actually four gifts, pastor, teacher, evangelist, um, um, apostles, and prophets. Um, that's that's a gift already given, but the other gifts, pastor, teacher, and evangelist, those gifts are not part of the foundation, so that's still part of the building that is currently being built. So SMY, your, your sister is not a prophet. She's not right when she forth tells or foretells the word of God. Um, we have a, a culture that seems to be consumed by people who pronounce themselves modern-day apostles or modern-day prophets, and they're often speaking for God. And the church is gullible and vulnerable, and for some reason or another, they believe those things without any reason at all to do it. So I hope that makes sense. Let's take a phone call. we got Mike on line one from San Antonio. Mike, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor Ron. Hi, Mike. Hey, quick question, Old Testament saints. I, I'm convinced, and maybe I'm wrong, that God spoke audibly to these saints. Uh, I mean, he literally spoke out loud to them. I'm not saying every single time, but I'm just, I've read the Old Testament plenty. I've studied it. What's your, what's your perspective on that, sir? Yeah, Mike, we know he spoke audibly to them. Um, we know he spoke audibly to uh, to Moses at the, through the burning bush. We know that he spoke uh, repeatedly with Abraham. Uh, we we know he spoke. So yes, he spoke audibly. He spoke um, in a way that that was conversational. Um, um, but but I, I don't think there's any doubt at all, Mike, that that God spoke audibly uh, to people at times in the Old Testament. We know that Jesus appeared to Samson's parents. We know that Jesus uh, spoke to Gideon, uh, and they were conversations. So it wasn't just in a dream or in a vision. It wasn't an impression on their heart that he spoke audibly. Now, one of the things we have to remember is that in the Old Testament, those Old Testament saints did not have the Holy Spirit living in them like we do. He would occasionally come up on them. They could perform uh, great feats of strength in Samson's case, or they could perform miracles, uh, but, but it was the power of God, the Spirit coming upon them, but it wasn't internal. It wasn't in a relationship like we understand. Now, the reason God doesn't speak audibly to us today is because he's already spoken in his word. I read that from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Um, um, today, with the Spirit of God living in us, we have those instances where God will speak to our heart, but it's not audibly. If we would hear the audible voice of Jesus, it would crush us. It would crush us with with holiness and majesty and power. 
But uh, uh, you're, you are right, Mike, in the Old Testament, for sure, um, God spoke out loud, audibly, conversationally to people when he needed to get them a message. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Christopher. He said, can you explain what a seeker church is? Um, I hear they don't talk about sin because they want the church to be a positive experience. Um, Christopher, seeker church, I'm teaching tonight at Laodicea. And the church at Laodicea would be a seeker church. Tell people what they want to hear. Don't make them uncomfortable. Conviction of sin. Don't make them serve. Don't force them to make choices. Um, and in a modern day seeker church is still doing the same thing. And I think it's instructive, Christopher, at this point to to uh, to uh, illustrate the fact that that uh, Jesus tells this lukewarm church at Laodicea that that they they make him sick. Now I know that that sounds very unchristlike. But literally, he said, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You, you're not hot. You're not cold. I wish you'd be one or the other. I'm about to vomit you. And it's a very strong word. I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. And the reason is because they were sitting in church and they were absolutely convinced that everything was fine. Well, that's what a seeker church does today. We have so many of them, Christopher. This is one of the things that I struggle with all the time. I get physically angry. Now, it's righteous anger, and I hope I don't sin in my anger. I don't think I do, but but I'm sure at some time in the past I have. Um, but I get angry because I run into people all the time who think they're okay when they're living a lifestyle that separates them from God. I want you to think about this. Somebody's living with somebody they're not married to. Somebody is participating in a homosexual lifestyle. Oh, God told me it was okay. Um, if they go to a seeker church, they're never going to be told that what they're doing is wrong. They're more interested in getting people in. Now, I can't judge the motives of their heart. And I'm sure, based on some conversations I've had, they think they're really doing the right thing. Well, I want church to be a positive experience, but it's not a positive experience if they walk out of there unchanged, if they don't meet the real Jesus. I have met dozens of people in this last year, since make a year and a half, since since the, the quarantines began. People who've been going for going to churches that I know are secret churches. And they don't know who Jesus is. And when life grinds to a halt or when some cataclysmic thing happens like with COVID, they don't know the Jesus that will be there with them and for them. Because all they've ever done is gone to a church that made them feel good. No need to change because you're fine the way you are. God loves you. And while it's true, he loves you. He wants you to know who he is. And until we learn that God is holy and that sin separates us from him, we're never going to be in a position where we can benefit from it. And I've had just too many people in these last 18 or 19 months who were convinced everything was okay when in fact it wasn't. And Christopher, that breaks my heart. I, 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 again, I get angry, 
And um, I just wonder, what are these pastors going to do when they stand before the Lord? Is it going to be okay to say, but I made people come to church. We had a crowded church. You know, the best way to get a huge church is to tell people what they want to hear. Are they going to stand before Jesus and, and, and he's going to say, why didn't you tell him who I was? Why didn't you talk about holiness? Why didn't you tell him that they needed to repent from sin? Or we have no fellowship. And the pastor who stands before him is not going to be able to look at him and say, well, you know, we had a big church. And people spoke well of me. Christopher, it's a damage. It's a great deal of damage that's being done. And I think what this is is a reflection of the very times that we're in. Paul described it as a time when people will will gather men uh, who will tickle their itching ears because they don't want to deal with sin. And I think we're in that time right now. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. We've got five minutes left in this half hour of the program. Uh, my first, uh, this question is an anonymous question. How can we comfort veterans who served in Afghanistan during this difficult time? You know, I, 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 I we can pray for them. We can put our arms around them. We can weep with them. Um, we can grieve with them. Um, I had a, a caller here on the program, Dewey, um, a couple of weeks ago. And Dewey was really, really struggling with this very issue. He, he He's a man who risked everything to go to, to Afghanistan. I, I know Dewey, he has a heart that really wants to help the people. And that's what he was there in Afghanistan to do. And he was representing Jesus Christ as well as representing the branch of the military that he was in. But now he sees that his time was just wasted. He sees that there was no point in the time, and he feels betrayed by his country. But even greater is the sadness that he feels for the people over there. And all of the work that was done for all of those years we were there was undone in an instant. That's exactly what's happening here. Let me raise the stakes a little bit. Dewey came back whole. We have people in our church, we have a lot of people in the city who didn't come back whole. People, uh, we've got one young man in our fellowship who's had something like 38 operations since returning. We have others who've lost limbs. Others who lost friends. Marriages that were broken by the time apart and the stress of coming home. Relationship with children strained. Our streets are filled with homeless veterans who, in law, because of traumatic aren't the same people they were when they left for Afghanistan. And we need to be praying for these people because to have the country turn their back on their service, the sense of betrayal even in our military leadership. I was sitting with a Marine yesterday when the news came in that four Marines were killed. And I saw when he got the news bulletin. Now we know there were more than that killed now, but when he saw that there were four, I saw his face and the pain 
So we pray for them. We love them. And we encourage them to look higher than the president, higher than the military leadership. We tell them, look all the way to Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. So Anonymous, I hope you a little bit, but it's it, this is going to be a difficult time. There is going to be a long and difficult fallout from what we see going on now. Pray for our president. He needs it now more than ever. I know for a lot of people it's hard to pray for him, but those are the ones that we need to pray for the most. Pray for our president. Pray first that he gets saved. And then pray that he will do the job that he was elected to do. You may not have been a supporter of this president. You may have been a great supporter of him. But the reality is clear. The job isn't being done. And this is a time when we need to pray for them. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. And we're going to, again, we're going to see this over and over and over again. Um, reminder that this is our final weekend of the month uh, here at Calvary Chapel. It's the final weekend of the month everywhere. Um, and we will be heading into September. There's a lot of things that we can be praying for. But keep in mind that our response as Christians is to pray for the pain that people are in. We have 30 minutes left in the week, 340-9585, our toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life, and we'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. I get, I, I don't know why, it's always a little anticlimactic to get to the last half hour of the week. We've gone through so much and there's been so much good in the terms of calls and our ability to pray for people. I really appreciate uh, those of you who listen to this program and tune in. It means I get the opportunity to do this. Thank you very, very much. Daniel asks, Pastor Ron, if God loves us unconditionally, why does he send people to hell? Daniel, I want to make this as clear as I can. Jesus does not send people to hell. God the Father does not send people to hell. The Holy Spirit does not send people to hell. We choose to go to hell. Hell is simply an eternal state. Now, here's what we've got to understand. Being made in the image of God, mankind made in the image of God, means in large part that we are all eternal. From the moment uh, I came out of my mother's womb, actually from the moment I was formed in my mother's womb, womb I was going to live in eternity somewhere. We're not going to die. Bodies physically die, for sure, but but the spirit in us never dies. And um, um, we have two choices. We can spend eternity with God. We call that being born again. Or we can spend eternity separated from God. We call that hell. So if we 
choose to be born again, then we get to live with Jesus forever and ever. But if we choose to reject Jesus in this life, then we don't get to be with him uh, as some sort of a reward. Uh, uh, God simply honors the choice that we make in life. He honors that choice in eternity. And Daniel, God does love us, and he loves us unconditionally. He loved me, and Daniel, he loved you when you were doing horrible, horrible things. The Bible says when we were yet enemies, God loved us. Not only does he love me unconditionally, he loves me so much that he gives me the choice to love him or not. Now, for a long time, I chose to hate God. But there was a moment when I changed and decided I was going to love God and that was the ticket to get to heaven. But it would not be loving if somebody died, lived their whole life dying in in constant rebellion against God, I will not have this man rule over me. Remember, that's what the Jews said. We we do with the king of Jews. We will not have this man rule over us. His blood be on our heads. Well, God won't force them in eternity to have them ruled by by him. So he's just simply saying, okay, this is the choice you made in life. This is the choice I honor in death. And in the, 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 uh, the result will be every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And then they will be sent on the basis of the choice they made. So, Daniel, you're either an unbeliever or a very, very young believer. But this isn't even an honest question. The most unloving thing God could do is to send somebody to heaven when they wanted to be separated from God. I want no part of you, God. Don't bother me, God. And God is simply not going to say, well, you know, I love you unconditionally, so I'm going to make you spend forever with me. It's not going to happen. So God honors our choice, and in fact, and I like saying it this way, this is a statement that I used to say as a kid, you know, over my dead body. Jesus says literally, you'll go to hell over my dead body. He really makes it hard for people to go to hell, and that they make that choice anyway. Thank you, Daniel. Scott says, I can't see where the apostles taught the doctrine of imminence. Why do you emphasize Jesus' return so God, I emphasize Jesus' return because he's coming soon. He's coming soon. And imminence means suddenly or out of nowhere. We don't know when that time's going to be. We just know it's going to be sudden. And he comes once the rapture of the church happens and the great tribulation breaks out. And then uh, seven years into it, when he returns in Revelation chapter 19, there won't be any warning. And there Going to go on like he says, and then there won't be any warning, won't be a duel, we don't get any other opportunity. Now, you don't see where the apostles talk to this. The only explanation for that is you're not reading your Bible. Paul says, When we who are still alive, or we who are still alive, will be caught up in the air, gathered with him, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and 1 and 2 Thessalonians. He talks about the difference between them and us. Jesus himself said, a wicked and lazy servant says, my master delays 
his coming. So, Scott, all you have to do is read your Bible. It's over and over and over. And I've said this many times on this program. The truth is that the power in the first century church was a result of two things. Their gratitude for what God had done for them. But but even to a greater degree, their expectation that Jesus was going to return at any moment. You know, if God himself tells you, I'm coming soon, I'm going to come to get you. And that's what Jesus says, I am coming soon. So read your Bible. So that's the doctrine of imminence. And it's inescapable as you read through your New Testament. So Scott, read a little more and you'll understand. That's why the church in the first century had so much power. It wasn't the miracles they did. It was... They really expected to see the Lord. They were obedient. They were radically sold out. Mark says, Pastor Ron, how could Jesus' family not believe he was the Messiah? You know, Mark, this troubles a lot of people. Um, Mary, of all people, knew who Jesus was. But time has a way of distorting our perception of things. Uh, We're told in the Gospel of Luke that they literally thought Jesus was crazy, out of his mind. And they went to take control of him. Mary was one of them. Mary could have said, I've told you the story. An angel came and told me that I was going to give birth to the Christ. So I know who this is. But she forgot John the Baptist who baptized Jesus, who knew exactly who he was. John the Baptist, sitting in prison, had doubts. We know the enemy is the source of those doubts, but but so too are expectations. You see, in John's case, uh, Jesus wasn't doing what he expected. John the Baptist was a Jew, and Jews believed that the Christ would come and establish his kingdom. He seemed to forget all about the suffering servant passage. That's what Jesus said to the road to Emmaus disciples. You're slow to learn. You're slow to understand. All these things had to be fulfilled before the day of the Lord. And so they looked around and their expectations weren't met. And when time keeps going by, Jesus was approximately 30 years old when he started his earthly ministry. And if he was 30 years old and nothing had changed and suddenly your son, your brother is attracting these huge, huge crowds and everybody in in the area is talking only about him when they hear about all the miracles that he's doing. But more to the point, I think when they see the opposition that's forming against him, the murderous intent that opposition had. I think there's some time when you just think, well, if he really was, this wouldn't happen. So their faith was weak. At times, all of our faith, Mark, is weak. And it's in those times that we have to remember the promises that God has made. So that's the best I can do there. It's not that difficult to understand, I don't think. 
340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Tim says, Pastor, the divorce rate between Christians is essentially the same as for non-Christians. That being true, what's the benefit of being in a Christian marriage? Um, Tim, don't blame God for the divorce rate between Christians. You're right. The divorce rate between Christians and non-Christians is essentially the same. But that speaks to the lack of faith. That speaks to the weakness of our faith, um, the weakness of our understanding of commitment. What it really says, Tim, is that the flesh of a Christian is just as ugly, just as stinky as the flesh of a non-believer. Let me ask you a question. The Bible says that we're not supposed to use foul language. Do you ever use foul language? Do you ever curse? Somebody might say, well, you know, I know Christians curse just like unbelievers curse. The problem is when we're in our flesh, we sin. And in this particular case, the uh, institution of marriage, uh, it simply says that we're simply not committed. We make a promise to God and we break that promise. But that's not an issue that God has. It's not of the fault of God. It's simply Christians acting like unbelievers, and it just ought not to be true. So I hope that makes sense, Tim. Here is a question from Linda. She says, what is the best way to reconcile serving God and taking time our families need? My husband serves at church a lot, and I wonder if he should be home with kids anymore. Um, Linda, I don't think there's any need to reconcile. Um, if your husband is not um, spending the necessary time uh, to be a blessing to you and to your children um, because he's serving at church, it is possible that he's serving more than God wants him to serve. Uh, it, it also might be possible, and I think this is more likely, that you and your husband are not equally yoked in terms of commitment. Now, I'm saying that because I don't want you to think I'm being critical of you. I'm not at all. Paul would be and begin to give us decision, decision that together we were to serve God. All the it wasn't one of those things where I said, come keep up with me, or she had to look at me and say, come on, Ron, keep up with me. It wasn't at all. It was just we understood that the purpose of our lives from that point forward was to do the work that God called us to. And we made that decision before we knew what God called us to do. We're going to serve God. We're going to tell people about Jesus. We're going to do that. Now, when uh, I, I be, was called to be a pastor, we Texas, one fierce Paula had. This is just the devil whispering in her ear. Uh, because I was a workaholic, I mean, I worked plus hours uh, routinely in my old business. And Paula was sort of a workaholic widow. And she thought, oh, great, I'm going to, uh, you know, my husband's going to be serving Jesus and it's going to be good work, but I'm still going to be alone. I'm still going to be by myself. And God made sure that wasn't the case. So I serve a lot at church, but so too does Paula. And we serve together a lot. So there's no time 
um, you know, where it's just me or just her. There's a lot of time where we're serving together. Now, admittedly, we don't have young kids, and that creates a little bit of of a, of a, a different uh, circumstance. Um, my staff pastors here at Calvary Chapel, um, many of them have young families, and and I don't want their families to be ignored because they're here at church serving. Now, I expect them to be here at church, and they're here three services on Sunday, and they're going to be here tonight, and they're going to be used by the Lord. But the, the kids are coming to church with them. And the kids get involved in doing things. So then it's a family commitment. Now, Linda, I don't want my pastors to miss when their kids are playing ball games, when their kids are in plays or in dance recitals. Um, and, and I understand that. And so they know that, that their family needs to be attended to. And it never gets in the way. So I give them the time. Now, if I were a husband's pastor and, and you came to me with this question, I would ask him, are you, are, what, are you and your wife not on the same accord? How can two walk together unless they agree to do so? Why does your wife feel like she's alone, like you should be home with them more? And is this something that you've prayed about? You see, that's a neat thing about a family that's committed to serving Christ with all of their heart. He's going to, Jesus is going to provide more than enough time to serve at church and more than enough time together at home. I think that's the balance that we need to find, but you only find the balance where all of you committed wholeheartedly to your service for Jesus. Linda, I pray to God that made sense to you, um, that your husband serves at church. There's a lot of women who would pray to have a husband like yours. But this is one of those things where you need to sit down and talk to him if you feel like you're being neglected. I know a lot of pastors who are always at church, their families are being ignored. That's simply not the heart of God. I tell people all the time, if you're too busy to serve at church, you're busier than God wants you to be. Well, I tell the pastors, if you're too busy here at church to be the husband and the father you need to be at home, then you're busier than God wants you to be. You've got to find a balance. And the balance will be provided by the Lord, but it always comes with wholehearted commitment. So, Linda, I hope that makes sense. Daryl says, Pastor, do you think we ought to give to beggars at freeway entrances and off-ramps? Daryl, typically my answer to that is, no, I don't think you ought to give. Um, you know, the Bible says very clearly, if men won't work, he shouldn't eat. I've, uh, in past years, offered people jobs, um, days work, I'll give you a great day's pay, and I, I don't mean minimum wage. I would, I'm typically pretty generous. Um, and they don't want that. A lot of times they make more money standing at the curb. So, um, no, I don't think you ought to give. I understand the guilt that people sometimes feel when you're saying, I'm a Christian and Jesus said we're supposed to care for the poor. Well, I think the way to care for the poor is more than just handing them a few bucks. Uh, Paul and I have, have uh, on occasion, we've told somebody uh, with a will, I need food sign uh, to sell them. Look, we're on our way to, uh, we go to In-N-Out Hamburger sometimes, and, and, and that's a place where we always see people, hey, uh, walk right over to the In-N-Out, and we'll buy you dinner. We'll buy you lunch. 
And um, you know, when sometimes they're really grateful and they do it. Other times, no, they, they just want to sit there and, and panhandle. So uh, I think this is a matter of conscience. I have a friend. We were at that same In-N-Out, by the way. And a guy came up to him in the parking lot. And he said, uh, he said, I need some food to get home, or I need some money to get home. And my friend, who was a pastor, uh, just pulled out the money in his pocket, and it was like 300 bucks, and he just gave it to him. And I said, wow, that's a lot of money to give. And he said, you know what? I just felt like God told me to give it to him. End the conversation. So be led by the Spirit in cases like this. And you'll always be pleasing to God. And you know what? Even if we get taken advantage of, so what? It's not that big a deal. By the way, Daryl, one other thing. When when you give something to somebody, don't give it with conditions. I've heard people say, okay, if you promise me not to spend this on alcohol or drugs. No, if, you, if you're led to give, give. Just give. And then pray for those people. And what they do with the money that you give is between them and the Lord. Thank you, Daryl. Good question. I haven't had a question like that for a long time. Um, Philip says, uh, I notice people are staying single a lot longer than when I was growing up. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, Philip, I've noticed it too. I've noticed that, that younger people these days are far more willing to sort of meander in life rather than set goals and go after them. Um, you know, uh, I met Paula, she was 17 years old and, and I was, um, March, I was 18 and, um, I knew I wanted to get married as soon as I saw her. I loved her immediately. And today, if you, oh no, I'm not going to get married till I'm 30 or I'm not going to get married till, till later. Um, um, I, I just think, you know, we've, we've created a bunch of selfish people and they're missing out on, on being blessed. So, um, I, I we make it easy for kids to do nothing. We let them live at home. Um, we 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 don't make them go to church. We don't make them contribute to the household expenses. Uh, we just make things easy for them. It's easy to be um, non-committed uh, when you're comfortable, and I think that's what what uh, a lot of people are doing. Whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, um, who knows? I, I think uh, it's not a good thing when people don't get married. I think it's one of the reasons there's a lot more sexual immorality, the reason that sex is is uh, so much more accepted now, sex of all kinds. Um, so I, I think it's just a sign of immaturity. Um and, you know, this pendulum always swings back the other direction. So I would imagine, Philip, that um, there will be a course correction made in this issue. But I, too, have noticed that people are staying single a lot longer than than before. Um, we've got, uh, I've got a wedding next Monday, a week from this weekend, a week from Monday. And, um... Uh, uh, this is a girl I've watched grow up since she was a little girl. And, um, you know, the man that gets her is just blessed by God, I'm telling you. And uh, I think they're going to do great. We've got several young couples who are getting married. Hey, you know, let me just share this, Ted. This is uh, not, not Ted. Ted's the next question. Um, let me just share that, that one of the things that we watch, this one of the blessings of longevity 
Um, we've seen a whole bunch of relationships develop at our church from when kids were very, very small. Um, in December, I'll be marrying Pastor Matthew and he and his fiance Veto. Um, I mean, they've been an item since grade school. Think about that. And everybody knew now very godly and, and you know, we're, we're, it's not like they were public displays of affection or anything like that. Um, but, you know, we just knew. And we could see God's hands putting them together. And it's just, and so Matthew's now graduated from college. He's got a job. They're buying a home. And, and he's he's going to marry her in December. And we've got probably three or four other relationships uh, just like that at different stages. Another uh, young man who is um, coming back from college soon, and he and his girlfriend are going to get married, I'm sure, almost as soon as he lands back in San Antonio. Uh, we've got some high schoolers now who have, I mean, I've got one young couple. And, and again, they're not a couple the way the world sees couples. But i got one young couple who, when the young man was in third grade, he told me he was in love with this girl. And I said, well, and I won't use her name, but I said, so, you know, that's quite a statement. You're very, very young. What if she falls for somebody else? Now, this is a third grader. And he looked at me and he said, they'll have to go through me. <laughs> and, and, you know, now they're in high school and they're just as committed uh, to one another as they ever were and doing it the right way, a godly way. So uh, thanks for the opportunity to think about that. I'm just so blessed by God. Ted says, and this will be my last question of the day. Ted says, Pastor Ron, I think the government is trying to control people with the vaccine. What should I do if vaccines become mandatory? Let me say this, Ted. I don't think the government is trying to control you with the vaccine. The vaccine is not the mark of the beast. Uh, there is no sinister plot. You can decide based on the facts and prayer as a Christian about whether or not you should take the vaccine. But but the, there's not, the vaccine isn't an injection. Suddenly you're going to be a robot. Um, I think we give the benefit of the doubt. The government is trying to do what they think is right. Now, I think their information's wrong. I think mandatory vaccination is... Um, um, unacceptable, just incomprehensible to me. Um, but it, but it's it's not something that they're going to use to control you. If vaccinations become mandatory and you don't want to be vaccinated, you feel like this is what the Lord is leading you to do, then be willing to suffer the consequences of not being vaccinated. As Christians, there are consequences to the choices we make. And when you assert your individual right not to be vaccinated and your job is going to fire you, that's the price you're going to pay. It's a good thing, no. But it is the thing that we're dealing with now. Thank you. Hey, have a wonderful weekend serving the Lord. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And we'll be back next week, Lord willing, on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. 
The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. AM 630, The Word.